I am delighted to introduce our guest preacher today, Dr. Mateus de Campos, who is seated down front here with his beautiful family. Hello, beautiful family. <laughs> uh, Mateus is my colleague at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and he, uh, he teaches in the area of New Testament, and he wrote his dissertation on the book of Mark. So he's well qualified to speak to us from the book of Mark. But you know, with Dr. DeCampos, uh, the book of Mark is not uh, just an intellectual exercise. It's, it is the word of life. And it is a book about discipleship and helping us follow him. The title of our series is Follow Me. And so Matthias has a real heart for discipleship and the church. He has been a pastor. He is a preacher. He is a scholar. Will you please welcome Dr. Mateus de Campos? Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, my brothers and sisters. I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful pleasure to be here with you this morning. Um, Thank you, Jeff, for inviting me. Uh, Jeff is a man who wears many hats these days, and he does everything with excellence, and I admire you for that. Uh, one of those hats uh, is being the dean of Gordon-Conwell Hamilton campus, and therefore my boss. <laughs> and I'm going to try to forget the fact that my boss is seated right there looking at me, and also that he is one of the big names in preaching in this country and worldwide, known worldwide. So I'm going to try to forget all that. All right, Jeff? You, you can stay there, but I'm, I'm going to try to forget all that. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you all. Uh, will you join me in reading the scripture? Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, verses 1 to 12, is what we're going to, to read. Uh, this is what the Word of the Lord says. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty, empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others, some they beat, and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him 
killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but fear the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you'll give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand what you have to communicate to us this morning. May your spirit be with us and enlighten our hearts. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Um, I'm not sure if this is the... um, Oh, there you go. My wife and I have always been uh, lovers of creation. And by creation, I mean what normally is referred to as nature. So trees, flowers, grass, oceans, mountains, animals, birds, and so forth. We love to be around creation. We love to contemplate creation. We love to play around creation. We love to bring our kids to play around creation. And I think it's working because now my, the favorite thing my, my daughter Zoe does is to bring creation inside the, the house. Because we have ants and bugs and sticks and leaves everywhere. Uh, so the love of creation is spreading through the family. And it is really interesting because... Uh, We grew up in Brazil, my wife and I, and even though Brazil is known as a place with a lot of nature around, we're known for the Amazon forest, pray for the Amazon, Uh, we are known for the incredible uh, beaches we have in, in, uh, in Brazil, but the reality is that most Brazilians live in urban centers. And my wife and I, we grew up in an urban center in Brazil in fenced in houses and very little space for a patch of grass. In fact, our interaction with creation throughout our life and even our marriage was limited to our appreciation of creation, uh, not really having to look after it. The the greatest experience we had in in that regard was to plant a tree in the sidewalk in front of our house, in one of the the, the houses that we we lived in Brazil. And it's still there. Every time we go back to Brazil, we we try to visit the tree. And, and it's, it's good to see that it's still, still standing there. But that's most, most what we did in, t- in terms of taking care of creation was that and maybe planting a few, a few flowers in the garden. Now, things changed considerably when we moved to the U.S. And we moved to Middleton, uh, just up north, uh, one year ago. And the Lord has blessed us to, uh, with the opportunity of being in a place that is really surrounded by creation. We upgraded from a small tree in the sidewalk to dozens and dozens of trees around us. I was trying to count the other day, not, not the trees in our property, but around our property, and just the trees I have fellowship with. Uh, and I had to stop at 50, and there were many, many more. Uh, and and most, most of them are pine trees, and those of you who are around pine trees know of the joys of pine needles and the way they so beautiful, dec- beautifully decorate our gutters. Uh, and, uh, and how, how difficult it is to, to take care of it. 
We upgraded from a small patch of grass to a front and back lawn, and, and that is the reason for my son to accuse me of promoting child labor in a house. Uh, now we have to trim uh, trees, we have to blow leaves away, we have to take care of the garden, and even occasionally, as you can see in the picture there, we, we need to rehabilitate wildlife. So baby squirrels, we have to bring baby turtles back to the river and things like that. So now being lovers of creation means something else to us. We actually have to take care of it. And I'll tell you what, when you, when you have to look after something, it means more to you. When you invest yourself, your time, your resources, and yes, your love, and things, they mean so much more. And the parable told by Jesus in Mark 12 tells us about a farmer, a farmer who is profoundly invested in a vineyard he planted, a farmer that dedicates himself, his resources, his energy, his time, and his hope in this vineyard, only to see it being seized by wicked tenants. Like all parables told by Jesus, they invite you, invite the listener, the reader, to locate themselves in the parable. And that's really the genius of the parables. They invite you into a story which is not your story, but by, by the time you get to the end of that story, it becomes about you. And you almost don't see that happen, don't perceive that happening. By the end of the story, you're asking questions about your own life and how you relate to that story. And that's exactly the effect of that story on the original audience. When uh, Jesus tells the story, he tells in the context of his uh, conversation with the religious authorities of Israel. And when they heard the parable, the, the Bible tells us that they understood the parable had been told against them. And even though they don't like the resulting portrayal of themselves in that story, they cannot escape the charge that that story brings to them. They cannot escape its meaning. Now, you've been following Mark, so you know the context here. Jesus is in Jerusalem, in the vicinities of the temple. And Jerusalem is the stage of the climax of Jesus' clash with the religious authorities of Israel. He just uh, a few days back, he had entered the holy city, mounted on a donkey in a messianic statement, declaring his status as the king of Israel. And not only that, he was through his parabolic acts, through he, the kind of the way he enters the city, he was also uh, conveying the sense that he was the Lord coming to his temple. And then he arrives in the temple, uh, very dissatisfied with what he sees there. He wreaks havoc there, turns the, ta the tables, send people away. My house, says Jesus, speaking the very words of Yahweh, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you, you have made it a den of robbers. The you here, of course, are the religious authorities of Israel. And they react strongly against Jesus. In the, the text that comes right before the text we read, you have the, the authorities coming to Jesus and asking, by whose authority 
But what kind of authority you do these, th these things? Who do you think you are? Where do you think you are? Well, the question is one of authority, is one of jurisdiction, is one of power. The, the, the temple and its vicinities uh, was the, the turf of the religious authorities. They had jurisdiction over the temple. They had power over the temple. They were the bosses of the temple. And when they ask this question, what, by what authority you do these things, it's interesting that Jesus answers with a, a very interesting way, alluding to John the Baptist, but I, want, I don't want to go there. But one of the interesting ways that Jesus also answers that question is by telling the parable of the vineyard. And the parable of the vineyard operates with the concept of property. A man planted a vineyard says the parable. Now, vineyards were very popular plantations in Palestine, and sti they still are, along with the fig tree and the olive tree. But a vineyard was tremendously profitable, valuable piece of plantation. And it was very difficult to build a vineyard. The soil in Palestine is very rocky. So the first thing you have to do in order to plant a vineyard is to clear the ground from the many, many rocks that would prevent the vineyard to flourish, to grow. And then the first thing you do, even before planting the vineyard, was to have those, those, those rocks that were taken out of the garden and build a fence around the vineyard. And that fence had multiple functions, of course, to keep wildlife away, to keep intruders away. But that's, the fence was literally a statement of property. It's the delimitation. It's the bound, sets the boundaries of the property so that everybody knows that that vineyard, that precious vineyard, belongs to someone. And then with the ground clear and the fence built, he would put a, a choice vine a sapling, and create a structure so that the, the vine would, would grow around and be supported by. And then as, a, as the ultimate uh, protection, he would build a watchtower so that someone would be there constantly watching to prevent intruders from coming in and people from taking uh, over the vineyard. This is a very personal and costly investment because the vineyard was a very, very important piece of property for this farmer. And it is a kind of investment that doesn't yield results right away. Hebrew law dictated that uh, you, you, could, you, you have to wait about three years before you would harvest any crop from a vineyard, in the fourth year, you have to collect all the crop and dedicate it into the, in the temple to the Lord. Only in the fifth year, the owner would be able to benefit from the vineyard. It's, a, it's, a, it's an endeavor of care, of patience, of expectation. Should I say of love? When Jesus tells a story, the, the, the Jewish people immediately would connect that, that narrative to Isaiah. 
In Isaiah 5, you have uh, the words of the Lord comparing his relationship with Israel to this uh, relationship between the owner and the vineyard. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning my vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield wild grapes, uh, to yield grapes, but he yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall be, uh, not be pruned or hoden. Briars and thorns shall grow up. And I will also commend the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. But behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The parable reflects very clearly the relationship between God and his people. And the vineyard refers to the identity of Israel as the people of God, the people of Yahweh. And the image here is a frustrated God. You can sense the frustration of Yahweh as he, he tells about everything he's done for this vineyard to produce grapes and his disappointment with the fact that he hasn't. This vineyard had everything it needed, every condition necessary to produce a plentiful harvest, but it didn't. Now, when Jesus tells a story in a genius way, he uses the same the same words of Isaiah, but with a twist. Instead of a charge against the vineyard, the story tells us that the vineyard is leased to tenants, to other farmers who would be responsible for taking care of it. Tenancy was a very common agricultural practice. The owner of the vineyard would lease the property to the tenants who were supposed to look after and cultivate the vineyard and then the owner, after a while, would come and collect some of the fruit from that vineyard. Uh, the harvest would be, a part of the harvest would be his rental fee. Notice that the, the owner of the vineyard wouldn't come and collect all the harvest. The tenants were allowed and even supposed to benefit from the vineyard. But giving the owner a part of the vineyard, a part of the fruit of the vineyard was a statement, was a, a declaration that that vineyard had an owner, that it belonged to someone else. So they were supposed to give this part back as simply in the normal terms of the contract would dictate, but then in Jesus' story, the story takes a tragic turn. At the time of the harvest, probably after five years, imagine the expectation of the owner, probably after five years, 
the farmer sends his servant or his servants to collect the fruit. But instead of giving back the fruit to the owner as they were expected to do, the tenants treat each servant violently. Some they beat and some they even kill. Now this was, of course, in an attempt to protect the property, and you were allowed to protect your property in the ancient world. The problem is that this was not their property. This was not their property. The messengers were sent by the owner of the vineyard. And apparently the owner of the vineyard runs out of servants. He sends one by one and runs out of servants. And then in a surprising twist, the owner sends his last resource. So important is this vineyard for him that he sends his only son into the hands of those murderous tenants, most likely knowing that what they would do to his son. But this was the importance of the vineyard for him. You see, in both Isaiah and Jesus' parables, the end result of this uh, of the story, the end picture of the story is as the picture of a hungry God. A God who devotes himself to his vineyard but never gets to collect fruit from them. Either because they are unfruitful or because they have been usurped by wicked tenants. So the question is a question of property. Who does this vineyard belong to? The wickedness of the tenants lies in the fact that they seize something that belongs to the Lord. They were entrusted with the task, the, the task of looking after the vineyard, but instead of caring for it, they seize it for their own profit. Now, of course, Jesus tells the story, and even the religious authorities recognize themselves in that story. This is a story told against them. And the Religious authorities of Israel, namely Pharisees, Sadducees, and some of the high priests, they would, of course, reject the label wicked tenants. But most likely they would welcome the term tenants. This is probably a way, a helpful way to qualify their relationship with the Yahweh. They would see themselves as those responsible to protect the vineyard, the people of Israel to protect their identity as the people of God, to prevent them from going into the corruption of idolatry. That was their mission. And at the very origins of their movement, it's probably that, that le legitimate concern with the identity, with the purity, with the, uh, the loyalty of Israel to the covenant, it was there. But according to Jesus... That legitimate concern, as time went by, turned into something else. At one point, they ceased to take care of that which belonged to Yahweh and decided to seize it for their own property. At one point, the authority that was delegated to them was rejected in favor of, a, of their own sense of authority and their own sense of property. So Jesus is therefore answering their question. They ask him, by what kind of authority you do these things? 
He says, I'll tell you by what kind of authority I do these things. I do these things on the authority of the Lord of the vineyard. This is not yours, says Jesus. This belongs to my father. And as his son, I came to claim what belongs to him. Now, I told you that parables are meant to invite us into the world of the story. And the genius of the parable is that it begins begins as a story that is not about you, but by the end, it becomes about you. So how is this about us? I would suggest two identities or two aspects of our relationship with the Lord that are conveyed in this uh, story. First, we are all vineyard. We are all vineyard. If being a vineyard relates to being the people of God, if being a vineyard relates to the identity of the people of God, then we, like Israel, are the Lord's vineyard. A vineyard in which he invested. A plantation which he cares for. A very, very important property that belongs to him and to him alone. The image of a plantation which is supposed to give fruit is a very prominent image in Scripture. Psalm 1 tells us that the the men, the righteous person who delights in the law of the Lord is like a tree planted by the waters which gives its fruit in the proper time. A tree which is planted in the best possible place. And for that reason, is in an ideal condition to produce a plentiful harvest. There is no excuse for a tree planted by the waters not to produce fruit. No excuse. In John 15, Jesus compares his disciples to the branches of a vine, and the vine is Jesus himself. And because of its connectedness to the vine, the branch is inescapably fruitful. There is no reason for a healthy branch connected to the vine in order uh, that, for, for it not to produce fruit. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.9 says to the church in Corinth, you are God's plantation. You are God's field. And if we are God's vineyard, it means that we are the object of His extravagant investment. From clearing the ground in our lives, from building the fences in our lives, from building the watchtower and planting the choice vine, we are the object of His loving kindness. We are the object of His devotion. 
He pours himself into the planting of the, the vineyard. He pours himself into cultivating the vineyard. He invests himself in the sustenance, ongoing sustenance of his vineyard. And oh, how he is invested indeed. And he created us when he planted us in the garden. He made us in his own image, in his own likeness. He invested his very image. He invested himself in what he was creating. He invested in us the breath of life. He gave us the treasure of his word and his unfailing promises. But according to Jesus' parable, so important we are to him that there is nothing that the Lord of the vineyard will not spare for the sake of his vineyard. And the reason we know that is because he gave his only son. Now, of course, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's probably the best well-known verse of all times and the cornerstone of evangelical theology. God gave His only Son. But do we really know what that means? Can we really grasp what that means? Can we really process the idea that God, out of love for us, when He decided to create us, He made Himself vulnerable to suffering? Can we really process the idea that the Almighty God, the absolute, absolute, the one who lacks nothing, the one who needs nothing, when He decided to create us, He wasn't necessarily making the decision of sending His Son to die for us. He exposed Himself in vulnerability for the love of his vineyard. And God did not give his only son for the sake of his vineyard because he, his vineyard is more important for him than his son. Jesus was not sent to die for us because God loves us more than he loves his son. Jesus came to die for us because Jesus loves us as much as the Father does. We are the object of the extravagant love of the triune God who invests everything he has in everything he is in us. But I tell you what, no investment comes without expectation. Farmers do not gamble. Farmers invest. No farmer plants a vineyard saying, you know, let's plant it, let's see what happens. <laughs> maybe it will yield fruit, maybe not. If it happens, great. If it doesn't, that's okay. No, no. Every investment is calculated investment. And the expectation of harvest is directly proportional to the cost of the investment. If we are his vineyard, the question I ask for us today is, how hungry is our God? 
Second, we are all tenants. We are all tenants. We're all taking care of something that does not belong to us. That was the very beginning of our story, wasn't it? When our Creator planted us in the garden and told us, be fruitful and multiply. When He made us in His image and told, them, told us, go, be fruitful, multiply, multiply my image, have dominion, exercise authority on my behalf. Be my stewards, be my tenants. And I'm not, of course, just talking about creation care here, although that's certainly a sphere of our dominion as human beings. But we were created as stewards, as tenants. People who care, who are called to take care of something that does not belong to us, And yes, as tenants, we are allowed to benefit from that which we care for, but always with awareness that it's not ours. Not only trees and plants and squirrels and turtles, but there's no single thing in this world that we can truly say is ours. We are tenants. What about my children? Well, children are inheritance from the Lord, says the word of God. Everything, the breath of life, the gift of time, money, resources, spheres of authority, everything we have is leased, has been leased to us. All of us have certain spheres upon which we exercise dominion things that are under our control, under our authority. But what if we live life as if it really belonged to the Lord? How easy it is for us to seize, to usurp, to take hold of things, to define our boundaries very closely, to say, this belongs to me. And when the Lord of the vineyard comes and says, remember, that is mine, we say, no. This is mine. And of course, we won't say that to God. But there are many ways to say that to God. What are the areas in your life that you're seizing for yourself? What are the areas of your life that God in multiple ways are sending servants to say, this belongs to me? And the reason why you're so concerned and defensive and actually failing to take care of it is because you don't recognize that it belongs to me. We are all tenants. Everything we have is borrowed. And perhaps, perhaps there are certain spheres of life that we begin with a legitimate concern and a pious devotion and bringing God into everything we do and, and to every sphere of influence we have. But as time goes by, the tendency is just to take seas and make it our own. We are all tenants.
We are all vineyard. We are all tenants. So yes, Jesus' story is about us after all. We are the people on which he invested himself to the utmost consequences, expecting fruitfulness. But we are also his tenants, servants called to care for that which belongs to him and to him alone. Vineyards and tenants, fruitfulness and stewardship. These are both our greatest privilege and our inescapable responsibility. Father, we thank you, O Lord of the vineyard, for the great privilege and the responsibility that comes with it of being called the people of God, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts. Please, Lord, when we hear your voice, coming, approaching the vineyard, coming into the garden. Let us not try to seize that which belongs to you, but let us joyfully enter in a relationship with you that we reflect our fruitfulness and our faithfulness to you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.